You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book called Auction Ready, How to Buy Property at Auction Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. One question on property owners' lips at the moment is, well, what will happen to property prices in the wake of the coronavirus? And while many worry about their own equity, a much smaller group is circling, trying to pinpoint exactly where opportunities might present, where the stressed sellers will be. Is it possible to predict any of this with any accuracy? Now, if you've listened to our recent Full or Forecaster episode, you'll know some of the drawbacks in relying on predictions when making property decisions. Yet we do need forecasters to model the potential implications of situations just like this. Why? Well, today we're going to find out. In this episode, we pick the brains of Martin North, the founder of Digital Finance Analytics, a boutique research, analysis and consulting firm who specialises in offering insights into the dynamics of the mortgage, lending, savings, payments and superannuation sectors and also how they impact on the property market. Martin was the subject of a lot of conjecture following his appearance in a 60 Minutes interview about the property crash in 2018. His prediction of 40% price falls was sensationalised. Let's face it, what a great headline. And we've also had a lot to say about it ourselves. Now today, thank you very much for joining us, Martin. We'd love to understand how and what you research in order to get a sense of what the future holds. Yeah, hi. Well, great to be here. And uh, I think it's a really timely uh, conversation given what's going on at the moment. But uh, what I want to try and do is is step back slightly from the day-to-day analysis and tell you a little bit about how we do what we do and why what we do what we do. And I guess the first point to make is that there's a lot of information out there from various sources looking at banks and how they lend or high-level information about property dynamics. But what we do from here is to look at individual households and their finances and what's happening to them. So we run a continuous revolving survey, 1,000 households each week, and we ask specific questions about their financial profile, their plans with regard to property, uh, their cash flow. So, so we get we look at it from a customer or household perspective rather than from a bank perspective or from a risk perspective or from a RBA perspective, right? And there's nobody else really does that. So we've got this unique picture of individual households, how they're behaving, and that gives us then some insights as to, for example, how many are finding difficulty making those mortgage repayments, whether they're thinking of buying or selling or, you know, all of those things. And we can go down to a postcode level because we capture 
this 1,000 a week uh, sample on a statistically robust basis matches the ABS census. So we actually have a view across the country, but we can go down to quite granular detail. And that gives us a great starting point then to begin to sort of pick it all apart and understand what's going on. I find that fascinating, Martin, because um, how do you determine, and, and you say statistically robust, how do you get a 1,000 people that really do reflect the whole of Australia's households? <laughs> well, luckily, we don't have to do that ourselves. We designed the survey, but mm. we outsourced the survey mechanism to one of the big agencies. I can't tell you which one it is because of a mutual NDA, but essentially they have some great uh, software programs that allows them to be able to uh, structure calls based on a statistical analysis analysis of of the market, and uh, they both basically go on making however many calls they need to make to get me my one thousand. That's sort of the contract, really. So sometimes they have to call two or three thousand households to be able to get people to actually um, pony up with the information. But luckily, that's not my headache. That's somebody else's headache. I just get the data. And then I spend all of my time analyzing the data, modeling it, and then squirting the information out through to my blog, through to my YouTube channel, and also more in more detailed senses to individual clients. So Martin, just um, to give our listeners a bit of a background, so how, did, how long have you kind of been in this space? What made you kind of get into the finance sort of commentary area? What kind of inspired you? And kind of what's your history there to kind of give people an idea of how long you've been doing it? <laughs> well, I have to say that I'm turning 65 this year, so I've been around the traps for quite some time. I spent many years in the banking industry and in the UK where I started my, my banking, I, I, I was one of the first people to turn the conversation around and think about individual customers rather than, if you like, loan portfolios. And so I did work in the UK in the uh, 1990s, came out to Australia, worked for a uh, National Australia Bank, uh, previously that Citigroup here, and then went into consulting. But I started uh, just around um, the year 2000 uh, with essentially doing these surveys. And so we've been running these surveys continually since uh, the year 2000. And so we've built up this amazing history of information about households and their dynamics. Uh, and we found that that was quite useful. I, I worked for a couple of large organizations and used the data there. But then uh, about a decade ago, I basically set up digital finance analytics as its own firm. And uh, I've been doing this basically on my own, under my own shingle ever since. So uh, we've got a bit of history. So, you know, 10 years under, uh, uh, if you like, under the DFA banner, but another 10 years plus under the previous incarnation. So we've got history. And then the other thing was it, it became clearer and clearer to me as I went through this that almost everybody that I spoke to in the banking and finance sector weren't interested in households, weren't interested in individual customers. They were interested in generic risk model profiles or, you know, flogging more products, never mind who, who takes them. So there was a fundamental disconnect between looking at the issues from a customer-centric point, which is what we do, vis-a-vis most other the people. Now, a few players are beginning to wake up to the fact that not, not all customers are the same. Different customers need different things at different times. And so now with uh, what's happening, we're getting quite a lot of interesting requests for our information. The other thing we do is we then start to overlay risk profiles and risk of default profiles onto those individual households based on the history of information that we've got. And we are able to compare that with information that we also get from other sources. For example, when we work with clients, they, they share information with us. We don't 
sell that information on, but it gives us an, another lens. So we begin to actually detect the early signs of difficulty in households and f- household finance and how that translates to difficulty later. So, for example, four or five years ago, I was calling out that in Western Australia, for example, in Mandra, which is one of my, um, if you like, target postcodes over there, that mortgage stress was rising quite fast. And about 18 months ago, we started to see default levels rise and we started to see home prices fall. So in Mandra, they're down on average about 30%. And we've been seeing defaults at running at 5 or 6 or 7% in that particular area. That was totally predictable based on the earlier leading indicators of mortgage stress. So that gives you an indication that there is a very strong correlation ultimately between households, finances, household behavior, and what happens to the property markets and what happens to property prices. And unfortunately, what we saw in the West a few years ago, we're starting now to see down the East Coast, which is why I'm relatively negative about um, future prospects of property. Can I ask a question on that? A couple, I've got a number of questions there. <laughs> First of all, how are you segmenting? If you're saying that you're doing this survey over a thousand households and they're representative of Australian households, um, how do you then segment? Because it's sort of like you're going granular, but at the same time you're aggregating. Yeah, so we have a number of different segmentation models that uh, use what I call multifactorial elements, which is a complicated way of saying there are lots of different things that influence them. So, for example, we look at uh, uh, their age profile, we look at their wealth profile, you know, their net worth, uh, we look at their occupation, uh, we look at their family structure, and uh, a few other factors too. So, for example, we can slice, think of it like a Rubik's Cube, right? So, you can basically twist this cube and look at it by location, uh, types of location, property type, you can look at it by um, uh, for example, whether they're first-time buyers, whether they're looking to trade up or whether they're looking to trade down, whether they're property investors or whether they're owner occupiers. We can look at it by um, older, younger, first-time buyers, um, young-growing families, um, you know, those moving into retirement, the affluent sort of top top few percent. So we can slice and dice it a number of different ways. And that's really fascinating because, again, there aren't many people who actually un- understand this dimensionality. And, of course, people – sometimes we'll move from you know one segment to another segment over time but as a snapshot at a point in time we get some remarkably powerful insights about where people are and what they're doing and uh, you know what they're perhaps thinking of doing overlaid against the segmentation that we use how many segments would there be do you think? Uh, well, it depends. I, so I've got um, about 11 master segments, which is essentially uh, an age, net worth, and a couple of other factors. I have another sort of eight, nine segments in terms of property segmentation. And then I have another set of segmentation based on geographic bands around, um, for example, the CBD, inner outer ring, and those sorts of things. So there are lots of different, uh, different dimensions. But um, mm. Uh, and for some clients, they've asked us to segment more granularly than that. So sort of, you know, 40 or 50 segments. But then what you discover is that you, you go down that route and then they can't use them. So so, so there is a, there's a diminishing returns rule here about yeah. if you get too complex and too granular, it ceases to be useful. But I find that on average, you know, 10 to 12 segments is actually a very useful sort of, sort of level to go to. So I've been looking at some of your segments, Martin, um, you know, in the past, and I know you sometimes call them like your stressed seniors and your young affluent. Mm. Um, can you kind of talk us through just some of those? Because I think that's really important when people are thinking about um, the property market is understanding the demand side and who who really is 
um, out there buying, who really is struggling, um, and who would really want your property. So can you just talk through, um, I guess, some of your segments in terms of what you name them? And that can kind of help people to really understand the different demographics, I guess. Yeah, sure. So let's start with the property segmentation first, because that is the most obvious one. So we know that there are around 250,000 first-time buyers. So they are people actively saving, desperate to get into the market, uh, were very interested and attracted by the government uh, 95% scheme, although, of course, some might have got caught thanks to what's happening now. Uh, You've got um, people who are in what I call suburban mainstream. So these are people who have already got their property, uh, you know, that they perhaps bought it a few years ago. They've got a, a young growing family there or an older family. Um, you've got what I call a young growing family segment, which is the younger group. That's a lot of first time buyers, a lot of uh, people who have newly formed families, you know, young babies, um, you know, people who actually need to move from, let's say, a flat to a house uh, or um, from rented to uh, owning a property. Uh, you've got uh, the older groups. So there is uh, effectively the, what I call the stable mature group. So they're young, they're older than the uh, mainstream group, but they're actually now probably people who've kids have left home, they've got a bit more wealth behind them. They may have a couple of investment properties. Uh, and then you've got a couple of senior groups. So, for example, what I call the um, stress seniors. So they're the people often on um, pensions and uh, very, very little wealth behind them. And then the more wealthy senior group who are quite often will have investment properties. Uh, and then you've got a couple of um, uh, sort of more uh, sort of spread out groups that effectively um, are, for example, profiling what I call the outer ring. So those people uh, on the urban fringe, for example, quite a lot of those are actually owning property, but are really struggling and therefore not going up or down, particularly in the market. Then you've got other groups coming back to property again, people who are up trading and down trading. And this is a very important segment because the the down traders are people, perhaps those older groups, so those mature groups, um, who want to release equity now from the property before property prices fall. And in fact, that's the segment that is now the most aggressive in terms of trying to sell, plus the property property investors who are actually very much now um, wanting to get out because they can, yeah. they can see that uh, property investment has gone sour, rentals are down, uh, capital values are dropping, and so we are seeing the pressure to sell in, in those two. So, so what I've tried to do there is to knit together some of my, you know, household profiles and my property profiles to give you a bit of a sense of where the moving parts are. I'd also make the point that we've got this affluent group, this top four or five percent of households who actually have the highest net worth, the biggest uh, portfolio properties. And uh, quite often they've got stocks and shares and other things too. And interestingly, they're the ones that are really feeling it at the moment, perhaps more than any other group, because some of the other ones I mentioned before have always been used to struggling and making ends meet and, and, you know, just uh, having to prioritize spending. But this more affluent group have never had that experience before. But suddenly, a lot of them are finding that their income has got squished. Well, they've also copped a hit too because they've got – if they're exposed to the share market (laughs) as opposed to just purely earning uh, an income – Yep, it's being hit always, superannuation, yeah, yeah. Share, share markets, bonds, uh, pretty much whatever you look. And so suddenly the the, the, the the affluent set, the ones who thought 
they're never going to get caught, are being caught. And they are quite often in a situation now where they've got real cash flow problems. They've got lots of assets. Mm. And then they so they are actually being forced to sell as well. So, so there are a number of um, indicators in our data that suggests that there are household groups who will have to sell, not being forced by the bank directly, but are being forced to sell simply because the financial profile that they're in has changed. But when the thing is, I guess, there that if they're in different segments themselves, so like an affluent, an older affluent, for argument's sake, who might have some investment properties and, and is, has cash flow problems, your geography is going, in terms of your geographical segmentation, is going to be cut on where they live versus where they own. Would that be the case? We have both sets of data in the in the in the in the in the you know in the information set. So yeah. we know where they live. We also know where they where they got their property portfolios as well. And, and, and there's there's is, quite interesting differences. Yeah, is there a pattern in terms of? Can you see that there's the geographical areas where you would expect there's going to be more of that for that that um, pressured selling? Let's not call it forced selling. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so selling, but you know, I mean, I, can you see that? Can you see certain oh, yes. areas, or you think it's across the board? No, no, it's not across the board. So, um, if you go to the uh, DFA uh, blog, you'll see we put up uh, geo maps, so we can actually color code different uh, postcodes with essentially the proportion of households who are um, looking to sell property. So, we, this is a property lens rather than a you know a household location lens. Mm. And and what's interesting is that there are there are a couple of observations. Clearly, there are some over in Western Sydney. If I take Sydney as an example. Mm. Uh, where the, those younger households who bought um, are really struggling and they're looking to, to escape. But there are other postcodes uh, where, and, and some of those are in the inner rings. So, for example, some of the units that are actually owned by property investors, not, yeah. not in the CBD but slightly further out, there's a lot of those owned by the more affluent households who live up the northern beaches or, or somewhere else. Mm. But essentially, they've got this portfolio of uh, investment units, and now those units are not performing. Yeah. So, so we're seeing quite a lot of those coming up. We're also seeing... Okay. So I just had to interject a bit because it's funny how you say now they see that they're not performing. It's probably they never they never probably were performing. It's ah. just that, you know, well, a bit of financial pressure and all of a sudden the lens, the spotlight's right on it. Well, what's interesting is we've, we, we've done some modelling over the years as to what the true performance of property investments are, right, both in terms of net and gross yields. Mm. And the truth is that more than half of investors never make any money if it weren't for the capital growth. Yeah, but, the, that's, well, but that's the point of investing in property, and that's our big argument: is that people, too many people, are investing in property for yield, and it's too risky, too lumpy, too much borrowing, all that sort of stuff. It's a crazy thing to do, really, if you're just investing for yield. If you're not investing for growth, why bother? So, what you basically said the same thing: that those that, that suffer on the yield. Um, but, but your modelling does that sort of how many people suffer on both? Yeah, well, the answer is that now people are suffering on both because effectively from the cash flow perspective, rentals on property, if you look in Sydney, for example, some of the rentals yeah. are dropping quite mm. quite quickly. Oh, terrible, yeah. I, I've, I've seen, I know, I know people are quoting smaller averages, but I've had a number of people with a 30% cut in the average rental that they're now receiving on their property, mm. right, compared with a year ago. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's enough not to cover the mortgage. That's enough even allowing for any tax breaks that you might get to make it effectively a negative um, cash flow uh, proposition, even with low interest rates. Right? <laughs> then 
you've also got the problem that if you've got a unit in particular, some of those have also fallen ca- in capital. So, so the argument always was from the investor community that I survey, they said, look, I'm okay to take a bit of a hit on the cash flow because I can offset that against my other income and uh, negative gearing, et cetera, et cetera. But as long as there's capital growth, mm. Problem is, I'm not sure we're going to see much capital growth over the next one to two to three years. Well, I think the interesting point you've said here where the mortgage stress is, and I think um, it's interesting to kind of cut the data up, right? And that's what you do is you, you kind of, by interviewing these, you know, 1,000 people every week, you get to see all these different segments and see where the pain is on a household level rather than at an aggregate, you know, millions and millions of Australians, and which is a kind of pointless data. So you need to go granular. And what you're saying there is that, you know, a lot of the new house and land packages and new housing estates in, say, for example, Western Sydney, it'd be also the Western parts of Melbourne, um, you know, the fringes of, say, Brisbane, um, where you've got a lot of new families with a lot of debt, um, you know, potentially only on one income because it might be a young family. Uh, you know, without doubt, they've been showing stress for, many years, even prior to the coronavirus. Um, but also, you know, you're saying a lot of, you know, older, say, generation who have gone out and invested and invested poorly pretty much, bought poor assets, um, who are feeling a lot of stress now because they're getting, you know, the rents are dropping and they've also got capital force because they've gone and bought high-rise apartments or, you know, investments in, say, southeast Queensland. Is that kind of, is that grasping exactly what you were kind of saying there? And yeah. Is it true that a lot of that demographic were feeling stressed prior to corona and this is only, you know, sped it up? Correct. So the point to make is that this was already happening. It's been happening for at least two to three to four years. And that's a combination of flat incomes, the fact that property values have been up and down. In fact, uh, I'm not sure that the average indices tell you that much. You've got to look at individual properties. So I would argue that the virus has been a catalyst to effectively reveal what was always there. And Warren, yep. Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked, right? Well, yes. I can tell you there were a lot of property investors who've been swimming naked for quite a long time, hoping mm. for the better, hoping for the yep. next notch it up in terms of capital values. And of course, you know, the, the, the prime minister, when he was making his pitch to the electorate last year, said, under our <laughs> leadership, we're going to allow property prices to go up again. So, you know, he was actually preaching to the choir, as it were, in terms of uh, now got to understand there's been a generation of activity from politicians and from the Reserve Bank to keep the property prices up and to use that wealth from households to stimulate the economy, supported by strong migration, supported by strong property investment. Yeah. That, that's been the plot, right? And that's yeah. that replaced the previous mining, mining boom that, that tailed away. But now, unfortunately, it's all falling apart partly because of the virus, but the virus was only a catalyst to the fundamental structural flaws that we've had in our economy for some time. We've got more debt than almost any other sets of households in the world. We've got property prices that are way too high relative to income, relative to GDP. And in fact, my, on my modelling, they're 40% higher than they should be on, I feel like, a natural neutral point of view. So, yeah, so I think um, the thing is fundamentally Veronica and, and I – and you, we all agree on the most important thing here where um, most property investors have stuffed it up and, buy, and and their returns on properties aren't great and most are struggling, especially right now because of rent issues, no capital gains, potentially capital falls if they're buying poor assets. And right now, because you've got this kind of 
influx of unemployment and um, income stress, um, what was kind of just kind of tickling along and um, making you know things were just you know surviving because the rent was coming in that was covering you know the interest on the mortgage and um, a lot of that's kind of getting unravelled now for these kind of multiple investment portfolios which. I've, I've seen for many years, I've, I've seen these investors come in and um, there's no gains on any property. They've got four, five, six properties. Um, and now, now that's starting to really unravel because, you know, there might be a loss of job and things like that. So is that kind of what you're alluding to that you needed a kind of catalyst like this to, to really make the, the falls kind of come true? Yeah. So basically people were hoping for the best. They were hoping, you know, th- th- there's still a huge belief out there that property values double every seven years or 10 years, right? Yeah. It's remarkable how strong that embedded that is in the Australian psyche. And of course that, that is hardly true. Um, it's, oh, I look around the world, look at what happened in the global financial crisis in US and UK and elsewhere. Property prices can go down. And unfortunately, whereas perhaps up until now, property investors were hoping for the best, uh, they're now realizing that actually the tide has gone out and uh, quite a few of them are now rushing to the exit trying to sell before prices fall further and that's why we're seeing an increase in listing for example of some uh, investment problems we're also seeing by the way some people who were using airbnb as an alternative mechanism to try and drive higher returns and of course airbnb is now completely frozen because of the uh, the virus so again another reason why people are beginning to think about uh, trying to get out so a lot of people would call you a doomsdayer um, or a perma bear, um, etc. But have you ever sat on the other side of the fence, um, you know, by looking at your data and your surveys, say 10 years ago, like if you've been doing this for 10 years, you're talking 2010, Sydney went through, you know, a doubling in prices from 2012 to 2017. Um, and if were you on the, were you at, in 2010, believing that Sydney prices were going to fall and then they doubled? Like, you know, have you ever sat on the other side and thought that the power of immigration, low interest rates, governments, banks, et cetera, the conflicted industry out there will drive prices higher, even if the numbers don't support it? Mm, Well, I've always run scenarios. So I've always said there are scenarios where I could see property prices continuing to run higher. I said that some years ago and I still say it. So I'm I'm not in the same campus as, as for example Steve Keen who's said for years and years and years the property prices are 40% overvalued and they, they will always they will always fall it's just a matter of when and he, he he didn't predict the level of government support and RBA support and the low interest rates all of which supported the market for a good number of years right um, yeah the thing you've got to understand though is that whilst prices did rise so did debt and so the amount of debt in the system today is double what it was a decade ago, let's say, right? So what we actually have... I would argue that also the, the equity increased, though, to offset that debt. Well, that, but that's the point. But it is, it, it's a paper profit, right, until you sell. Uh, and the fact is that if you actually have a property that doubles in value and you've done that by doubling the mortgage that you've got, you're, 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 you've got some leverage, sure, on the way up. And of course, people have then cross leveraged one property to the next property to the next property, and that's part of the part of the challenge. But the reverse is also true, and so it is fundamentally a question of what do we think is going to happen vis-a-vis property prices over the next two or three years, right? If you still, if you, if you, if you believe that the government's going to pull another rabbit out of the hat, they're going to do another first owner grant here, and they're going to actually give you more tax breaks over there, and perhaps get rid of uh, stamp duty and those sorts of things, there is a scenario to say that after the um, virus wobble, prices will begin to move up again. But we are, I think, reaching the point of what I call peak debt. In other words, how much debt is 
manageable, given the fact that incomes have been flat for many people since 2010, given the fact that the cost of living are still rising. And now, of course, with the levels of unemployment rising quite high and, and probably will rise higher. Um, all of those factors would suggest that that's a bigger drag. And now the question is, is it going to be sufficient to take property prices lower in the medium term or will they actually turn the other way? And, you know, I was talking back in 2010 after the global financial crisis that still the banks were lending very freely. Their, their lending ratios were allowing people with six to seven times their income to get properties. Uh, it's now yeah. still, still seven, eight, nine times in Sydney I'm seeing. So we've still got massively over leveraged um, households and very, very weak lending standards. And that's why ultimately, this is potentially going to be a traffic accident. So you, are you saying then that that's really fundamentally the cause of what you say is the Australian property market, which I guess we need to sort of carve up a bit, but you're saying that Australian property is overvalued by 40% because too much money has been put into the system by via lending. Um, but then I guess uh, on the micro level, you've got to think, well, why were people borrowing that money? What is it about the belief in society? And that is that fundamental belief that property goes up in value and doubles every 10 years or so. Um, and you're saying that that's really the sort of the consumer belief and then the availability of credit and those two things together is really what's pushed prices up over a point where you see value. Is Correct. Yeah. Saying? Yeah. Well, I actually think it's, it, this is a lending led thing that's been going on, right? Without the lending, I doubt that we would have actually had anything like the growth. Now, you can argue that there were international investors buying as well from China, for example. Yeah. And you can not certainly, really. you, and, uh, there were some, but not as many as <laughs> most people. Yeah. No, ex exactly right. Yeah. And, and you can also argue that property investors, of course, had the tax breaks, which gave them extra incentives. But that was a government policy. That was a deliberate thing. And it goes back to what I said a little while ago. Understand that post the mining boom, the government and the Reserve Bank basically were using the household sector to power growth and migration yep. to power growth. And it's the combination yep. of migration and high debt that's actually led to the situation that we're in. But here's the but point. You've also, sorry, you've, before that, you, sorry, yeah. you've also got the situation where the construction industry is such a major employer in this country. Yeah. Yeah, well, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to oh, say, <laughs> I was going to say exactly that. So, got to also understand that the construction sector is, you know, a million jobs in construction. Mm. You got to also understand that there's been a lot of activity, another two hundred thousand units still to be completed in the next twelve months. And by the way, we have more yeah. than one point two million properties vacant across Australia currently, according to the recent ABS statistics that I've been looking at. So it's not like we've got an undersupply of property, and yet we've still got the, no. we've still got the momentum there to build more, build more, build more, but it's all back to this basic economic view of activity in the construction sector is so critical to the economy to get GDP up. So you can see it's 50% of, <laughs> of the economy is uh, household consumption plus construction. Then they've got obviously the international um, uh, exports. You yeah. know, uh, but that's how the economy's worked. And unfortunately, this is highlighting now the weakness in the strategic intent of multiple governments and the Reserve Bank for at least a decade. So you might actually, so you're 100 hang on, oh, I've got this question I've asked so many data people that we've had on this podcast and that is this, the question as to how we can have had a situation of oversupply and undersupply simultaneously in a city and uh, Brisbane and uh, well, maybe not Brisbane so much but certainly Melbourne unit market is a classic example. You've got supposedly an undersupply of stock and yet you've had an oversupply of brand new units in you know South Bank, Docklands and all those, those sorts of areas and 
you got prices rising, you know, from 2013 to 2017, prices rising significantly in housing uh, in Melbourne, and yet you got people losing value if they bought one of those apartments. Um, and these things can happen simultaneously. And have you done much into that, much research into that specifically, how yeah. that can happen, those things can coexist? Yeah. So there's two things to say. You have to go granular. You have to go down to a postcode level because there are individual scenarios in different postcodes with over and under supply. Yeah. Second point is I do think that the real estate industry generally has been preaching and, you know, the HI have been preaching, we need more property, we need more property, we need more property, uh, mm. without necessarily the data to support it. I don't believe the undersupply story generally, but there are specific hotspots where it's perhaps true. But the other point there is that what we're finding is that those new properties that are coming on the market until very recently, you know, the, the ones where you bought off the plan two years ago with the promise that values will be higher, um, were right, you know, right at the top of the the market and driving the market higher. Um, by the way, you can now get a 20% off very easily if you actually negotiate and perhaps even, even more. And you're even getting things like a guaranteed rental streams for two or three wow. years from those developers because yeah. they're desperate to shift them. Mm. Um, that shows me that actually the truth of the matter is that we probably don't really have a net undersupply in certain areas, maybe a little bit, but not generically. But it's because it's being driven by this growth story and the fact that we need to build more because it's an economic imperative. Um, that's how I read it. And I can go into a particular postcode and look at the relative supply demand. And I can tell you that in many areas, there's more stuff available than the people to buy it. So there's definitely an undersupply of things that suit families because if there was a lot of choice for families, they wouldn't go and take on, you know, massive mortgages uh, and buy homes. The problem is there's not enough homes and, you know, there's only a small amount of, you know, for, let's say there's 5 million people in Sydney. There's not enough quality housing in suburbs that they really want to live um, near the city because there's just not enough land, right? And so we can't create anymore. And then the problem is that a lot of those houses have been, sitting in families' households for 10, 20, 30 years, haven't transacted. So, yes, there's only not that many houses, but there's only a small fraction of them on the market at any point in time. And then there's so many people that want them, and that's what creates this real shortage of supply and always a really strong demand. But if you you know, flip that the other way and look at the high-rise sector, um, I am completely concerned about the off-the-plan sector in the next six months. The reality is um, I've got a few clients in this situation who – bought prior to coming to me, um, you know, if they lose their job um, and, you know, millions of people have um, or they get their hours cut, even just 20%, you know, if they were running their servicing, they cannot settle on these properties. Um, And uh, then you've got a valuation issue, um, you know, and fire sales in the area. So I think the off the plan sector kind of got away with it because, you know, in the last year, everyone still had their job. So they could somehow figure out a way to, kind of settle on these mortgages and defaults weren't that bad. But if you've got the two um, defaults on property values, but also people haven't got their jobs, you can't settle. So these hundreds of thousands of apartments that are still haven't been finished, um, you know, I've definitely got a, you know, I guess a time coming in the next six to 12 months where you are going to see lots of defaults. I was talking to a developer about that actually recently and he was, and I was saying, look, you know, have you ever sued anybody for the deposit and the, the subsequent um, the difference between the subsequent sale price and what they had originally offered. And um, he said, look, most developers wouldn't do that. They'd actually try to sell them or get them into a smaller apartment in the complex if they can. So that was just an interesting um, 
uh, aspect into what can happen there. So they might still end up buying these dud assets, but, you know, smaller dud assets. Well, there's another dud as well, and that's, of course, the quality of the construction over the last mm-hmm. 20 years, right? Ooh, yeah. So, yeah. So, so more and more people that I survey are really worried about the cracks in their apartments, uh, you know, or in their investment properties. They don't want to mm-hmm. mention it because as soon as they start talking about cracks, the value falls through the floor. And if you look at, you know, the Mascot Towers example where people now are suddenly finding that, you know, they're being asked for yet more money, and many of them will probably have to go bankrupt simply because it's too far gone. But the point is that the uh, Opal Tower and the Mascot Tower are just the pinnacle of a much bigger, poor quality construction issue, which I think will come back to bite us in the years ahead. Well, actually, just, on so, that, just for our, re, uh, our listeners, I just want to um, point to two previous episodes on that because we interviewed Amanda Farmer. She's a Strata lawyer. Uh, that was back in episode, I'm quickly trying to look for it, um, episode 103, around Strata owners' obligations and rights. And the reality is if you go bankrupt, um, you're leaving, you're basically kicking the can down the road to everybody in the building. If, you, if it's going to be a set of dominoes falling, you're going to be the first domino out because you have an obligation once you buy into these buildings. Um, no one can escape it really. Um, and the other one is the episode with um, Dr Nicole Johnson, which was episode 113, which is really all about defects in these uh, strata buildings. So just two really interesting episodes on those on that specific issue that you might want to go back and listen to. So, Martin, I was chatting to one of my clients uh last week and he made a pretty funny call. He said, look, I had to eat a lot of humble pie. Um, and what his job is, he's a quantitative sort of data um, share market sort of guru. He works for a big fund in the US, right? And um, what he's, all his data was saying, uh, look, the stock market, this is, you know, early, late March, stock market is going to crash. It's already dropped 30%. Um, all the models are proving that, you know, everything's overvalued based on forward income and revenue for businesses. And, uh, you know, I think things are going to really plummet. Now, what he didn't foresee um, is Donald Trump coming in and giving $2 trillion firstly and then another $2 trillion buying junk bonds. How over the, you know, the last, you know, say few years, has there been times where you've just kind of gone, how the hell is this possibly happening where the market's irrational and going up when it should be going down? I, the property market's really boomed in the last year when it should have been crashing. You know, I guess... How do you just deal with that, you know, stupidity or things that you just think are rational are happening where um, governments and, you know, RBA and things like that are acting? Mm, well, there's no doubt that the amount of liquidity thrown back into the markets directly and indirectly over the last few years is part of the story, right? And uh, like I said earlier on, no political party wants to be involved in property price falls. Um, you know, they always want to try and talk it up as, as Morrison did last year and then, then did things that basically support the property market. Again, there's a ton of that going yeah. on. The question is, does that eventually run out or can you continue to create ever more uh, you know, different ways and more creative ways to get more people into debt for longer. Because what you're doing is you're dragging forward from the future and bringing yep. those people into the market now. Now, when we have 300,000 a year migrants coming into the, the country, maybe you could argue that that would be sustainable for a bit longer. But of course, that stopped at the moment. And so one of the questions to my on my, on, on my modelling is, what happens now that migration is zero? <clears throat> because that was a significant factor in, in what was going on. And my own view is that the 
governments around the world and the governments here in Australia will do everything they can to keep the property market up. They'll throw more liquidity at the banks. They will um, you know, find more schemes because the last thing that they want is for property values to slide. The reason is, yeah. one, it directly erodes household confidence, wealth, and therefore ability to spend. But two, it also flows back to the banks because suddenly their uh, books, which are 65% mortgage-driven in Australia, very high, um, they will be very exposed if, in fact, we started seeing property values falling at the time when unemployment was rising, and that's the, the pincer movement that we see. So I am sure that there will be many initiatives brought out from the cupboard and a few new ones will be created to try and support this for further. But remember, you're going further and further away from the long-term mean average. And I've still of the view that ultimately, eventually, gravity wins. It's just a question of whether it's this year, next year, five years or 10 years down the track. In the meantime, more and more households are being sucked into ever more debt. And now we're seeing the issues with regard to debt servicing because the incomes are being squashed. And uh, ultimately, you know, in, in the neoliberalism, in the neoliberalist world, debt has to be repaid. It always has to be repaid. So basically, you can't just walk away. There's no, um, uh, you know, non-recourse lending in Australia, full recourse, which means that it's your problem. So I, I agree with you that migration plus demographics is, you know, the, the, the property market is really a Ponzi scheme, right? And, and and people will take that and go, well, it must crash, et cetera. But the problem is Ponzi schemes go for a lot longer than people realise because the way that it works is you get new, you, you encourage more new entrants into the market that people leave. Um, and the way that we can do that in, say, Australia is, You've got high population growth. That's new customers to the property market. You've also got, you know, kids that are, say, 20, they meet someone or they're a first home buyer and they buy an apartment. They're new entrants to the property market. But then if people live longer, then there's less people kind of leaving the property market. And as long as you create enough demand, that's what kind of keeps forcing prices up. So even if we don't get high migration, for a few years, you know, this is um, one of the tickets out of this will be, you know, get uh, temporary, you know, tourism, um, you know, overseas students, um, increasing migration. That's without doubt going to be one of the things the government does. But you've still got, you know, so many families. You look at the owner auction, uh, owner demand or how many people in their 30s and 40s uh, and 20s own property versus renting, those demographics aren't at 70 or 80% of people. They're, say, at 40 or 50% actually own the home. So you've got all this pent-up demand who want to enter the market, um, and then you've got all these new houses kind of forming that want to enter the market. So how do you deal with that kind of demand that hasn't been, you know, hasn't entered yet? Well, it's part of the story, but you've also got to think about the baby bulge, right? The baby boomer bulge and the fact that those people are getting older now. They're looking to perhaps downsize. And of course, if the virus takes older people out of the equation earlier than expected, that's another potential ne negative. I'm seeing a big shift at the moment in terms of the, the relative distribution of property ownership. A lot of it's owned by older people who had a certain amount of wealth, although that's being eroded at the moment. But over the next you know, few years, that they're going to effectively need to sell, downsize, or otherwise uh, consolidate. Um, the flow of new people coming in to, to, to replace them is smaller. Um, relatively. So there's more than 1.2 million uh, down traders looking to sell. There's only about 800,000 up traders ready to replace and buy those properties. 
right? So that's one of the swings, whereas previously we had this big bulge of the 40s and the 50s and the 60-year-olds as, as the baby boomer generation moved on. So that's the first point. The second point is um, there are some differences now in terms of younger people and their aspirations with regard to owning property. And in some cases, uh, my research suggests that this whole idea of being a homeowner and basically paying a mortgage for life and ending up with something at the end of it maybe um, is less attractive than it was. So there's a bit of a change of attitude there. And then the third point is that, of course, more people are going into into retirement with a big mortgage still. So previously, it'd always be the case that your property would be mortgaged. <clears throat> you then pay it off before you retired, and then you'd be sitting there on equity that would allow you to be able to, um, you know, support you into retirement and beyond. But if you've still got a big mortgage and suddenly mm. your, your income drops, boy, have you got a problem? And we've got lots more of those people than we had yeah. previously. And the final point to make is that on a ratio basis, there's a higher proportion of people renting in Australia than ever before. So in fact, yeah. property ownership is shrinking, not growing vis-a-vis -vis the total population. But could you argue that property ownership is shrinking, not growing because of affordability? And then also, I guess the, the, it's not a natural natural um, correlation that anyone entering the market is going to buy the properties that the baby boomers vacate. You know, there's there's quite a lot of steps in between in a lot of areas. Um, so, I mean, how does that sort of come into this picture? <laughs> well, it's very it's a very good point, and you're right. So, you know, people coming in getting the first property don't want the big mansion that the baby boomers trying to sell. That's my point about supply. All the old, all the really old forty year old, yeah. you know, suburban home that only has one bathroom and doesn't have aircon and and it yeah. doesn't have open plan living and a TV room. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Dif different different priorities and different requirements. Mm. Absol absolutely, and that that disequilibrium I see all the time in my surveys. Right. So, and it goes back to this point about supply demand. There are some areas where there's more properties for sale than people want to buy and vice versa. Um, I think the, the other point that, that, I, that, that I come back to is that some of those people who bought their first property three, four, five years ago and are now looking to trade up, um, yeah. they're the ones being really caught in the current financial squeeze because they already had a big mortgage mm. and, and they are yeah. now not seeing their incomes growing at all and the cost of living are rising. So that ability to step up and buy the next property and then the next property mm. is much more limited at the time, by the way, when the banks have now started to tighten their credit standards once again. They loosened them a few months ago. They're starting to tighten yeah. them again now. So it's harder to get a mortgage. And so it comes back, I think, to credit availability and the economic cycle. But there are some really big mismatches uh, as you go through the generations and as you look at different property types. Um, but, you know, Chris, you and I would agree, I think that houses in prime locations in the major urban regions close in are always going to be in too much demand. They'll always be more expensive. But it's the stuff on the outer rims. It's the, you know, the the the, the, the Cranbournes of this, of this world down in Victoria, for example, yeah. or Liverpool, right, where we've had thousands and thousands and thousands of carbon copy properties being built or the high-rise apartments where there are thousands and thousands yeah. and thousands of properties, all the same. That's where the problem's going to be. And so how, in terms of your, uh, you know, your surveys, you know, obviously the government's saying, you know, unemployment's going to rise to 10%. But just even on your survey with a 1,000 people over the last, say, four weeks, that's 4,000 people that you've surveyed, how bad have you seen the unemployment spikes in just your data set? Um, and how bad do you think that, you know, that's going to get? Well, certainly more. Or even just income once. So uh, mortgage stress was at 32%. So just over a million households had cash flow issues uh, in, in February. That went up to 37% at the end of March. So that 
was a huge jump. So another 200,000 people got themselves into cash flow issues. Now, if you actually then ask, well, why was that? About half of them basically had job issues. Um, and I published a survey yesterday, 36% of households across the country now have got financial pressures that they didn't have thanks to COVID. So, mm. and around um, 25% of those with a mortgage have issues that they weren't expecting to have. So it's a big, significant issue. The unemployment rate is, isn't necessarily reflected in any of the public data yet, but I'm certainly mm. suggesting that, you know, if I extrapolate from my data, we'd see the unemployment rate which, by the way, I don't believe the official one was ever right. It was always sitting about yeah. the, the, the 7 or 8%. It's gone up by about 1.5% in the last two or three weeks, and it's gr- growing quite quickly. Uh, and remember that that's with the JobKeeper scheme, which is trying to keep the unemployment rate lower. If you'd taken that out of the equation, then the unemployment rate would have been 15 to 17% by um, August. <laughs> so you've got um, – you know, I, I agree with you that the outer rings – uh, potentially got mortgage stress, but in terms of your data set, um, I assume that they've also got a lot of other debt. So, um, you know, credit cards, car leases, you know, even Harvey Norman sort of, you know, 50 months free, etc. Um, have you seen that as well that, you know, not only is it just household, you know, home debt, it's a lot of consumer debt as well. Uh, well, that's one of the things, of course, our survey gets into. So we look at the total debt profile, not just the mortgage. And that's absolutely right. So often you'll find that those stressed households have multiple credit cards. That's the stress. First, if you're in mortgage stress, in other words, a cash flow issue, you'll put more on credit cards or you'll tap into your savings if you've got savings. About uh, a quarter of households have no savings at all. So they've got no choice but to use other forms of credit. Credit cards, yep. uh, interest rates, you know, 18, 20%. So the banks uh, win, win on those. Payday loans. Um, consumer credit, yeah. uh, consumer cards. But what's interesting is that a lot of those stressed households end up with four, five, or six different credit vehicles, as well as the mortgage. Yeah. And then they've got this terrible dilemma about which do I pay? You know, mm. which do I default on first? And and, and I'm quite concerned about the amount of um, uh, bad advice that's being given, which is to say, well, just restructure and refinance, and you know, and take some more, take take another loan, that'll solve your problem. Um, frankly, more more debt doesn't seem to me to be the problem of curing debt. And that's the issue here. So, like, um, a lot of banks are giving payment holidays, which is you know six months or three months, and then another three months. You know, you've got to apply for it, but. You know, there's still a lot of other debts they've got to pay, you know, the car lease, the credit card repayments, um, just living costs, et cetera. So, uh, and then if they've got, you know, unemployment rising in the household and even if only one person's working, um, it, they, they haven't got any buffers. There's zero savings and they've still got to pay these repayments and they've got this mortgage sort of uh, six months of no repayments. Um, that's kind of the, you know, where, you, you know, even if, there is repayments on the mortgage. You can still see that, you know, they might have to default. Is that what you're seeing as well? Well, there isn't necessarily payment holidays on the other types of credit, although uh, the uh, yep. choice was saying the other day that should be something which should be um, on the table as well. And if you're in hardship, talk to all those lenders too because, you know, a lot of people won't want to foreclose on people at the moment given everything that's going on. Yep. But the fact of the matter is that, yeah, you've got a lot of debt and if the solution is – take more debt. I have a problem with that. But of course, the people people don't understand interest rates very well. Many people don't understand what annual percentage rates are. They're just looking on how much do they have to pay each month. And unfortunately, quite a lot of the people who are caught in this are people with relatively low levels of financial education and a, a sense of, oh, well, I have to try and 
you know, struggle through this. So they tend to cut back on food and, you know, cut back on other things and prioritize the payment of debt. My argument is that we've got a situation where our society is debted out. And by the way, my surveys also suggest that some people have basically said, well, I'll always be in debt. I'm, I'm, I'm always going to have that, and I'll, ha- I'll, yeah. t- I'll take it to the grave. And so they've almost given up on the whole idea of, of repaying debt. And it's a matter of just keeping the, the, the debt balloon up in the air long enough while they get through into retirement and towards death. I mean, that's a remarkably scary scenario, but many people are thinking like that. Mm. Yeah. Well, you can see it because it's just the behaviours that have been built over, um, you know, 10, 20 years. Um, it's always been you know, paying off as little, you know, as most as you can of the credit card, but never the, the full payment, you know, if things get really tough and you go to a, you know, a short-term finance, um, if Afterpay is an option to pay at the, you know, the shop, then let's pay it. It's it's, it's better to go credit than cash. Um, and so, you know, it's very hard to change those behaviours and that's why I love what Scott Pape's done basically um, by writing his book is, you know, he's allowed people to get back in control and get out of that constant debt cycle um, and then, you know, start to debt, pay off their credit cards and pay off their car loans and really give them, I guess, the inspire them to take action. So, but the reality is, you know, how many people maybe sold a million books? How many people have gone and taken action? Maybe 20% at best. So, you know, you can't, um, there's still millions of households that are really struggling with this. Well, what's interesting, and I have quite a few people on my channel who've been following me for the last few years, and I've been saying, you know, debt's a problem, you know, manage your debt, pay it down. And I've now had a huge number of, of people who've said, thank goodness we actually followed your advice and we've actually um, taken the debt down, not up. But there are vast numbers of households in my surveys that are completely debted out. Now, of course, the financial system needs those people to continue to pay those repayments because that's how banks make their money. And that's the problem that I've got. It's institutionalized theft in a way, in my view, because basically it's there to drive this into, you know, a situation where you have more and more and more debt. And of course the growth in debt is what's been driving the profitability of the banks. Yeah. And I mean, it's consumer debt, isn't it? It's like the retail sector and, um, you know, cars and all sorts of things. It's not just housing. It's, even just day-to-day spending, we can get a credit card of you know ten thousand dollars, and we can spend that on dinners. We can spend that on um, whatever we like, and that's that's the big problem that you know we've got. Society is driven. That's future spending we're bringing forward to today. So you can't just keep on bringing forward future spending and. Uh, and not see a consequence down the line. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, there is. And I know there, there's a moral hazard here and a moral consequence, right? So if people keep getting debt and more debt and more debt, eventually it will catch them out, particularly when incomes aren't rising. But there's another part of the equation is that the financial system have been pushing ever more credit on people for a long, long time. Yeah. And, it, and it's almost seen as the natural thing to do. You know, why would you use cash when you can use afterpay or you can use your credit card? Yeah. And you get points. And, you know, so, so well, the whole- now. You got yeah. people yeah. don't want to take, they don't want to hand physically handle cash. So we're actually well and truly in a situation where we're just handing to, to buy a coffee with your credit card. Just for me, I mean, I find it deeply awkward, but I've been doing it. But you, you know, with, that we get used to it at the absolutely most fundamental level when you can spend less than $10 on a credit card. Yeah. So the point is, we are in a consumer society, and that consumer society is driven fundamentally by debt. 
And large corporations and the government and everybody else benefits from that because it brings consumption forward and it creates profit yeah. for the financial sector. The profit, the financial sector has got way too big for its boots, in my view. The financial sector should be enabling and facilitating real activity in the real economy. But no, no, they prefer to actually just lend more mortgages to households and get them into more debt. Um, that's a big problem. And, you know, some people are arguing that we've got to the point now where there's so much debt in the system that unless we have some sort of debt relief or debt jubilee, as uh, Steve Key would say, um, that there is going to be so much debt, it will never actually get out of the system and people will be caught in this debt prison for most of their lives. And that's the, that's the you know, the risk. Now, there are things that people can do, and, you know, uh, that book you mentioned is, is, is a really good read. I recommend it. Um, but it's quite simple. Basically, stop accumulating yeah. more debt, prioritize and start getting the debt down and particularly start repaying those on high interest rates. But it's tricky and many people just have not got the, um, the, the, the sense of how to do that, nor indeed have they been trained at all to think like that. And I go back to, I think, poor education in schools. This is something which is never taught. Yeah. And I think that's a disgrace. Um, you know, from a very early day, early age, you can start getting a credit card and then you can get a mortgage and then you, yeah. you have a student debt. So the whole of society is built on this platform of debt. And that's, I guess, one of the things that I rail against because I actually think it's a mistake. Yeah, so I um, I agree with you a, a lot with the, the consumer side. And I also think that the property side um, – you know, it is built on debt and it is encouraging people and there's a huge unregulated market behind it and uh, people are pushed into property, parents push kids into property, grandparents push their grandkids into property, um, even just society, your friends buy and the success is seen as being a homeowner and this is where it all falls down because people go into the market, they take on their biggest financial investment with zero education um, and generally people who don't really know too much about how the market really works from a demand and supply point of view. Um, and then they go out and do something like buy an off the plan apartment or a new house and land package um, because that's what it's better than renting. Rent, renting is dead money. Um, and unfortunately, these are the people that become mortgage prisoners, which I know that you speak a lot about on your channel and um, where the mortgage versus the house value or the property value, there's no real equity there and it potentially goes negative equity. Um, and then they're literally stuck. Um, they're stuck. They can't pay the mortgage down fast enough to kind of get out of there and they're going to lose all their deposits. So have you seen there's a big portion and a growing portion of people who are stuck, the people who have entered the market in the last few years? Yeah, so we model uh, negative equity. And, of course, there was a little bit of um, a rebound in certain geographies uh, with regard yeah. to prices in the last few months. Um, now, the Reserve Bank came out and said that around 3% of households currently have negative equity. I think it's uh, it's about 7% from my modelling, so I think it's higher. And the thing about negative equity uh, is that it stops you from moving and it basically keeps yeah. you a prisoner in that property because you can't sell. You have to just go on paying the mortgage, whatever, whatever, right? And okay, rates are low at the moment, so that's sort of helpful. But if you look at what happened after the global financial crisis in the US or indeed in uh, the UK, 10 years later, there are still many people in negative equity yeah. locked into the property and unable to do anything about it. And that's the concern because what it does is effectively it keeps people a prisoner 
in the system, a prisoner making those mortgage repayments and a prisoner unable to sell. And I think if properties prices do fall, and if they do fall 20 or 30% yep. or even 40%, as I'm suggesting in a worst case scenario, then what that means is we're going to have many, many people locked into properties with negative equity. It's a paper problem until they go to sell, so they won't go to sell. And that is okay for as long as they got a job. But if unemployment yeah. starts to get up into the 9 10%, which is now what the Reserve Bank is suggesting, then it could be the worst of all worlds. Essentially, you are forced to sell at the point when property values have dropped. And then basically your only route out is uh, bankruptcy. And unfortunately, I fear that is perhaps the scenario for some households. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do, dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress, mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Martin, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yeah, so I was looking the other day at some of the data from those uh, people who got the uh, 95% mortgage. Uh, You know, this is the one from the government scheme. So they went in with a 5% deposit and, uh, you know, they sort of assume that they will be fine because property values always go up. And I had somebody communicate to me the other day saying, we've already lost 10%. So I already lost that 5%. And now I'm reliant on the government. These stimulatory uh, approaches where you try and bring first-time buyers in with very small deposits is the highest risk, stupid strategy that there is. It lifts prices rather than uh, it helps people get in the market. But you as an individual borrower are taking that risk. And if you've only got 5% of equity and prices slide a bit, you lose everything. And that unfortunately is the warning that I want to put out. Yeah. A hundred percent. We I've never liked the policy and I was very vocal about it when it first came out because you're basically encouraging people to who have got nothing, um, you know, a five percent deposit, everything they've got, um, they potentially even go to their get debt to get that five percent, um, and they haven't been able to save much more than that, so their cash flow is tight, um, and then they all of a sudden go out and risk all that on one property, um, and uh, with a massive loan, and so you can see where. Um, there's problems there. And if you get a, more than a 5% fall, they lose everything they've got and now they're in negative equity and then they're stuck. Um, and, I, I, you know, that's what's happening to you know, lots of families. Yeah, and it's worth saying that quite a few people did get the deposit using a credit card or credit cards. So yeah. they had nothing, basically. And that's an example of dumb strategy that is responding to the, an, an innate greed and the need to try and get into the market that many people feel, I would say be really, really, really cautious currently. Well, that's been fascinating. Thank you, Martin. And, of course, Chris has been on your podcast um, quite a number of times, I do understand. And um, I've only had, the, I guess, the pleasure until this conversation, the pleasure of, of hearing you, I guess, at the where a lot of the property focused media will get you in and that is to talk about your um, predictions of 40% price falls um, and focus on that because obviously that's much more sensational than getting the full story. And and so this has been a really enlightening conversation because fundamentally we're in total agreement <laughs> and I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> that's scary. <laughs> it is. But the thing, I, I guess there's a weakness with, yeah, with that sort of blanket commentary that, um, you know, the media likes a headline. The headline sounds good when you're, you're predicting big price drops and they're not going to take the nuance and take the under, and they're not going to go to the depth to understand, well, that's not 
across the board. That is because there are certain areas that are much more susceptible to this than others, certain people that are much more susceptible than others. Uh, and obviously we've got a structural um, uh, impetus from the, the, the country to continue this this. Um, this situation where people are getting themselves into risk because it's the individual that gets themselves into these sticky situations, not the bank that lends them the money, not the construction company or the developer or the government itself that's getting the taxes. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, but as I said, I didn't think I'd agree with you quite so much. So it's been lovely, <laughs> always <laughs> lovely to t- chat to someone I agree with. <laughs> well, I appreciate the chance to talk. And it, what, you know, let me leave one last message. Go granular, right? Don't believe the high-level uh, you know, property prices always go up, or always go down. You have to go mm. granular. You have to look at the particular property in a particular area in the particular circumstances. And I think a lot of people would have uh, made many, many better decisions if they actually did a bit more research and went really granular rather than just taking the top level information that everybody, um, you know, in the real estate sector tends to spin because it's, yes. you know, t- tries to get people to come in. Remember that they're selling so that it's actually a selling process rather than anything yeah. else. Go granular. Do your research, do your information, and be careful. So true. A hundred percent, Martin. That's and that's why I love coming on your podcast when you, uh, you know, invite me on. Is that uh, and a lot of people think you're going in the lion's den with, um, you know, a lot of you know your followers who are, you know, and they. It's, it's, you can sit on either two sides. You can sit on like a real. Any property is a good property. You just got to get in the market. Doubles every seven years. Um, no. You know, just buy. <laughs> no, that is just absolute craziness. And uh, Veronica and I have seen, you know, how that just completely goes wrong. Uh, and then you can be on the other side, like have you know, everything's going to fall, everything's going to collapse, everything's the world's going to end tomorrow. And I don't think that's really productive either. And you know, I think you got to always try to sit in the middle and taking you know both sides of the story and then apply that to your personal life situation um and sometimes that might stop you doing what you're doing because you might figure out actually i was actually going to get myself in a big mess if i kept going down this path so i think um you know both sides of the story are really important yeah and you know dfa tries to provide balance right so we don't preach a particular way of thinking about the market we try to get people on with different points of view because i want people to make intelligent decisions based on their own information that's what we should ask for to i think yeah, I agree. I'm just going to put a couple of links in the show notes, um, Martin. Uh, you mentioned the geo maps uh, for mortgage stress, so I'm going to put a link in there from your website, but also uh, one of your articles around negative equity and, and housing price falls, and I think it is important. I mean, I've talked many times about, um, about yes, you can lose money in property, and I think that uh, people do need to understand these things. So if anyone is interested in reading about those, I recommend going to those links on the show notes. Yeah, and we also run a YouTube channel called Walk the World, and Chris has been on that channel a few times. Uh, very popular uh, guest, and Chris, come back soon, please. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much, Martin. That was good. Yeah, great. Enjoyed it. Cheers, mate. We want to make you a better elephant rider, and this week's elephant rider training is... Further on from uh, the conversations we've just been having with Martin, you know, that question, and I think I wasn't sure if you said it, Chris or Martin said, but, it, you know, is rent money dead money? Because there is a perception that this is the case, that rent money is dead money. Now, I was talking to a client of mine only this week and he his son has saved up enough money for a deposit on uh, an apartment, you know, but he's got under $500,000 to spend and he's talking about where where could he buy an apartment, what type of apartment, et cetera, et cetera. And he said to me, oh, but rent money is dead money. If he can afford to buy, he should buy. And I'm like, well, except 
if he is going to buy an asset that goes down in value. And the, and my client, you'd think he'd know this, but he says, why, what do you mean? And I said, the thing is that not everything goes up. And we've just had a whole episode talking about not everything goes up. And and I haven't mentioned it for a while, but CoreLogic every quarter brings out the pain and gain report, which documents how many properties in Australia have sold over the previous three-month period and have sold at a loss. And it's usually around about that 10% mark every single quarter. That's the amount of properties it sells at a loss. So coming back to that, is rent money dead money? That's very much an old-fashioned sort of approach. It's certainly a baby boomer sort of approach. It might be your parents or your grandparents are saying, oh, you've got to buy something. But I would say really, really, really take a step back and think, you know what, if I get trapped, if I become a mortgage hostage, is that what, um, or mortgage prisoner as Martin calls it, that's, that's a pretty horrible reality, but a very real reality for a lot of people. So it's, that's the boot camp today is really just challenging that concept rent money is dead money. It's only dead if you can buy a quality asset that is going to go up in value. Please join us for our next episode when we have back on the podcast, Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute. Now we are talking about some very, very important things in this episode, because of course, in the time of coronavirus, everybody's worried about the here and now, but also what's happening in six months, 12 months, and so on. So we do talk about all the big questions, mostly around unemployment and household finances, and what the future is going to look like post-COVID. What's really interesting uh, is that we talk about which income earners are actually going to be the hardest hit through this whole COVID exercise and you might be surprised at the actual answer on that one so this is a very much a must listen to episode of the podcast in these uncertain times please join us don't forget we're on all the social channels we're on Facebook we're on LinkedIn we're on Twitter or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au the links are all there for you please connect and send us a message we'd love to hear from you until next week don't be a dumbo Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.